and the Canadians are holding him. Degrasse, can he do it? Yes, he can. Gold to Canada. And after what a difficult season it's been for Degrasse, he tastes gold in the form. Hello and welcome back to the Shakeout Podcast presented by Canadian Running Magazine. As always, I'm your host, David Stahl, and on today's episode of The Rundown, I'm joined by Canadian staff writer Marley Dickinson to discuss the tragic passing of world record holder Kelvin Kiptum. As most of you likely would have heard by now, this past weekend, just months removed from his incredible world record marathon time of two hours and 35 seconds at the Chicago Marathon, Kiptum and his coach Gervais Hakizamana passed away in a car crash. Marley and I took some time at the top of this episode to celebrate Kelvin's indelible impact on distance running, the tributes made by major figures in the running community, and some of our favorite memories from his trio of record-breaking marathons. Later, we break down all the action from Canadian athletes at the Millrose Games this past weekend before being joined by Olympic marathoner Ben Preisner to recap his most recent race in Japan's Beppe Oeta Marathon, where he became the second fastest Canadian marathoner with a time of 2.08.58. I know this is a bit of a heavier start to the episode than usual. After all, with the loss of a 24-year-old athlete, how could it not be? But in such a short amount of time, Kelvin changed our very perception of what was humanly possible and inspired many, if not all, of the athletes we talk about and talk to on today's episode. And I'm sure he did the same for many of you as well, as is the case with Marley and myself. So while the running world mourns his loss today, we wanted to carve out some time to celebrate his impact on the sporting world throughout a career cut far too short. As always, if you enjoy the episode, please feel free to let us know. It helps us out a ton, and we love hearing your feedback. You can also follow us at ShakeOut Podcast on all social platforms to catch clips and updates from the program. But for now, please enjoy my chat with Marley and Ben. Marley, obviously, it was a packed weekend in the running world with the Milrose Games taking place, as well as a few other huge Canadian performances. But all of that really felt like it washed away on Sunday when the running world saw the news that world record holder Kelvin Kiptum had passed away in a car accident alongside his coach. For those maybe unfamiliar with the situation who hadn't come across the news, can you maybe describe the situation generally for people? Yeah, so it's absolute tragedy. I, I I honestly couldn't believe it when I first saw the news that we lost marathon world record holder Calvin Kiptum on on Sunday at just the age of twenty four. Um, he was on his way back um, to training camp with his coach and a, another passenger uh, when he lost control of the car and uh, veered off the side of the road and crashed his vehicle into the tree. It was later reported that Kiptum and his coach Javier uh, Hakmanzama were kind of they died upon impact. Yeah, it's just absolutely shocking. I mean, to lose someone at the height of their career and how much potential that he really had. You know, he was the first man to run that sub 201 marathon and he was the closest one to challenge that two hour barrier. So to lose someone at this point of their career is absolutely devastating. And you say the height of his career, which is certainly true. I mean, there's no peak quite like setting a very, very discernible world record. But at the same time, it's it's hard to even call it 
the peak or the height at again like you mentioned just 24 and i think i mean i was, I was talking with friends and it, it really people who aren't even in the running world it seemed to just cause such a blow to them again i mean it's even hitting me now talking about it i don't think we were chatting yesterday there had been an athlete's loss that had hit me in that way aside from Kobe Bryant in my entire lifetime, where it just was mm -hmm. such a shocking impact. And it sort of reverberated outside, in that case, the NBA world. I think in this case, the running world. These, you know, were friends of mine who really had no concept of how difficult a two-hour marathon could possibly be, had no concept of the, the insights of the running world. And yet, I think he just challenged again, what we perceive to be as humanly possible in a way that was so universally resonant with people. As obviously yourself, a fan and student of the sport, what can you say about Kelvin's impact on the running world? Yeah, no, I mean, like, as you said it too, it's, it's, it was kind of that moment where you, someone says it and you're like, no way. Like it's, you're just in absolute disbelief. I mean, he, I was reading some, some just post on, on an article he published talking about, you know, they remember running the Chicago marathon and hearing at, you know, mile 20 or mile 19 that Calvin Kipton broke the world record and, you know, being just a part of that race and, and seeing him do that. And I think at each of his marathons in his very short career that he challenged the mark and pushed boundaries further. And for him to um, kind of do that, everyone he kind of defined what was humanly possible and again it's he he really didn't reach his full potential and i think you know everyone knew that he had more to give and wanted to see him challenge that two-hour barrier in rotterdam mm. yeah 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 it, you're so right i think it's that that's the part that makes it even tougher to stomach of course it would it's just as sad losing anyone at, at such a young age just seeing the impact that he had on so many runners and you look at you know whether it's his london marathon or chicago all these performances there's such joy of him coming through and breaking the tape it was almost like he was astonishing himself i know i believe it was in chicago he talked about oh i would love to break 205 and then you know he starts pushing a little more aggressively at 30k and it's almost like he's surprised by his own abilities and i don't know there's just this freedom and this joy when he was running that it's infectious it makes you if you're not a runner it makes you want to go oh my god i want to i want to push my own abilities and perceived limitations it's yeah he said himself too that he felt like you know he he loved running marathons he loved training you know he was running 270 to 300 kilometers a week he wanted to push these barriers and do things that people have never done before yeah. and you know he even said he's never he never feels like he's been challenged by the marathon he wanted to give something his all and you know his performance in valencia where he made the fastest marathon debut yeah. or in london where he ran away from former champion emeros kipruto and threw down that wild negative split in the final final half and yeah. in chicago i mean he was on world record pace from the start and everyone was just looking at how fast is this guy really going to run right so he will it felt like we was around for a while but we only got to see him run three marathons within just a short you know 12 month period of time he'll certainly go down as one of the greats and all three of his races changed the sport yeah 100 I, I think like you say like the fact that over such a short period of time every single effort he put forth 
was it what was a historic one, whether it's a course record, whether it's the fastest debut, whether it's the fastest marathon ever run in the history of the sport. Each one was such a distinct impact that it feels like he had been racing for so much longer. We were chatting a little bit in the office about it last night. I mean, I said it earlier this episode, I really I do think it's unlike anything we've experienced before in the sport. I'm curious your thoughts, you know, as uh, the legacy feels incomparable, someone to come in with this blazing success and and then for us to lose it so, so quickly. Yeah, like uh, even as you said, it's even the people that may not have known much about him. And he's only around for, again, a year pretty much on in sort of the public eye. And everyone kind of knew where he was. He made a name for himself. And it's something that you really haven't seen in sort of any any across any sports. And the only thing I can kind of relate it to in running is something along the lines of Steve Prefontaine, you know, who died, you know, around the same age and uh, Samuel Wanjaro of Kenya, who was on a similar trajectory to kept him challenging records. And he had three major marathon titles an Olympic title to his name um, when he passed away at 24. So to kind of pack, go, like go this early in their career, it's, it's absolutely gut wrenching. And I, I still like, again, it's talking about it. It's just in disbelief. And I don't, I feel like we won't realize that he's gone until, you know, marathon season comes around in the spring and, He's just not there. And then at the Paris Olympics, which he was hoping to win. Yeah. This won't be around, which is just again, it's super sad. It is. And, uh, you know, it's going to be a small solace to family and friends who are experiencing that loss right now. But I think there is a little bit of that solace in the fact that he is immortalized in the sporting world and his impact mm-hmm. is going to reverberate. I genuinely believe forever like i just think that everything that he stood for in terms of the way that he viewed the joy in training the joy in the work and then the joy in the present moment of running as well that i think those are the things that he will be immortalized for but there were a lot of really touching tributes coming out of the running world i I was curious if there were any particularly thoughtful or touching messages from the running community that that spoke to you because i know a lot of athletes and coaches spoke out yeah i mean i, I was on on monday i was, was refreshing the news out of kenya and just reading all the tributes and love that kipton was getting you know a massive crowd surrounded the crash site and dropping flowers off at his training camp mm. you know a lot of people really cared about him and again the thing is is he was a celebrity like a lot of kenyan people saw him as this huge star and a prophet yeah. And this guy to look up to. Uh, Faith Kip Yegong really put a touching tribute on her Instagram. Mm-hmm. I know her and Kelvin Kipton were very close. Yeah. Uh, they were both nominated for World Athletics Athlete of the Year. And they were quite good friends. She posted a beautiful message about him on her Instagram mm-hmm. um, and shared a photo of them. So, I mean, that and Ken- Kenyan Prime Minister also, you know, released yeah. a beautiful message about him. Sebastian's Co. and World Athletics tribute about Kelvin really sums up kind of who he was as an athlete. And again, a very touching tribute. It, it The last line was run in peace. And that's, I'm mm. sure that's something he, he will be doing as he's just, he's, again, he just, like you said before, he just loved the sport. Yeah. Yeah. Faith Kipiega. And of course, Kenyon's leader as well. Those were two that really stood out to me as, as beautiful tributes and Joshua chapter guy as well had oh, a, a really yeah. touching one that again, these, these were things that really felt obviously that like they were coming from the heart as just, he received the utmost respect and, 
Rightfully so. Now, like we mentioned, we want to touch on some Canadian athletes in the Milrose Games as well. And, and I know I said at the top of the episode, we have a conversation with Ben Preisner coming up. But before we sort of leave this tribute to Piptum, I, I, I'm curious. Obviously, the running world is so saddened by this loss. And I think everyone in these moments looks for a way to properly commemorate a figure like Calvin. Mm. I'm curious if there are certain ways you think it could be done best. Yeah. And um, obviously, again, Calvin was training for the Rotterdam Marathon on April 14th, and he was planning to run. He wanted to break the two-hour barrier there. And I saw on social media that a lot of people were planning to run two hours on mm-hmm. April 14th um, in memoriam of, of Calvin Kiptum. And I think it's a beautiful message, and it just shows how tight this running, tight-knit this running community is. And yeah. It'd be a very nice tribute to him. And I mean, we're all good when no one's going to go out there and break a two hour marathon in a, in a, for that. But I think being able to kind of get together and just go on a run and for a tribute of, of Calvin Kiftum is just a beautiful message. And I think it's, you know, something we should spread around and get, get a lot more people behind. Mm, I love that. Wow. Yeah. I, I hadn't seen that. I think that's the perfect one, to be honest. I said in the intro, you know, get out there and and just get out for a run, embrace the sunshine, embrace that fresh air, embrace the present moment. Cause certainly what he did. I, I love that specific tribute. I think a tangible sort of everlasting one that I, I would maybe hope to see. I, I know he didn't have a personal connection per se with the city of Chicago, but it's neat moments like that, where mm-hmm. obviously it's a course record. It's a world record. It's one that we might, I truly, I don't know. I don't know when we'll see it broken. Obviously, again, he gave us the blueprint that anything is possible, but I would like to see a statue put up somewhere along the course, maybe at a, at a critical moment, maybe towards the finish line, somewhere where there's going to be a high track of traffic of people coming along in future years. I Again, mm-hmm. I think he maybe didn't have before the race, that special place for Chicago in his heart. But I would guarantee that that city has a very special place in their heart for, for him now. So that'd be a beautiful tribute. I think, I mean, again, I, I, they have, they have a little, if you've ever been to Austria or Vienna, they have a statue of uh, Kipchoge and his mark when he challenged the, the Ineos 159. So mm. something similar in Chicago would be, you know, very touching. And I think it'd be just an awesome mark for him and and the running community to kind of look back on and remember that moment. Yeah, of course. And now, like we mentioned, obviously the Kipton news overshadowed seemingly everything happening in the running world. But prior to the tragedy taking place, there was a, a big meet in Milrose games that a lot of Canadians showed up for and, and had a lot of really strong performances. So to touch on some of those from Milrose, I guess to start Marley, from a Canadian standpoint, who was maybe a, a standout from this meet? Yeah, no, there was, there was so much Canadian content to the Milrose Games, which was super exciting to see uh, this early on in the track season. Um, I thought, you know, there was there was a lot of there was Canadian, Canadian forms that were very good, and then some that were like, okay, you know, these are this is why we're building, this is why we're racing early to correct this, and then get that right for later this summer. Um, Simone Plourd uh, from Quebec and Charles Philbert Thibodeau, amazing performances, uh, both in the mile. Uh, Simone ran a 12-second personal best um, in the women's Wanamaker mile, which is really impressive. 
um, you know, she was racing against some of the best 1500 meter and uh, dis distance athletes in the world. And she was able to kind of hold her own and, and put herself in a kind of a, a, a competitive field and run well. And I think that's uh, must be a big confidence boost for her. Um, obviously going into an Olympic year, she, her in Budapest, um, she bowed out of the heats and she said that she felt um, that she needed that experience to kind of learn from. And, you know, she want that she wanted to be in that semifinal and wanted to give herself a chance in Paris. Mm -hmm. um, so I think having this performance, uh, clocking the third fastest uh, Canadian women's mile time um, at the Mill Rose Games will will kind of give her that confidence moving forward for the rest of the year, knowing that, she, yes, I can run with these uh, women and, 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 and kind of be there and put herself in a position to make a semifinal or a final. Um, and for Charles, I mean, his run, his 353, he's, he's three for three on personal best this season. Like, what a guy, right? Crazy. It's and, nuts. Uh, I mean, father time is undefeated, but CPT is making him work for it, for sure. Yeah, and, and we talked about it yesterday in the office, the fact that we used to put this sub four minute mile on this pedestal, which it should be, but CPT coming in at, correct me if I'm wrong, 33 years old, Hopping 353. I mean, just an incredible performance. You you mentioned again, this is a really it's a big meet that people have circled on their calendar. But of course, some people are gearing towards marks that they want to hit. Some people are looking more towards the summer. People are treating it as a little bit of a tune-up. But who maybe did you look at and think, okay, they maybe wanted a bit more out of Milrose this weekend? I think Andre de Grasse, I hate to say it, but he, he's, I, I, it's, it's a yes and a no. I think it's good that he's putting himself back out there mm -hmm. and challenging himself in races that don't suit him. We all know he's the 200 meter Olympic champion and that he's, he, his event is the 200 meters. It takes him a while to get up to that top speed. And his weakness has always been getting out of the blocks and getting that quick start. But, you know, he aspires to be great and wants to, you know, pull off, he wants to win three medals in Paris. Mm. So to improve that start and get himself in 60 meter races, it was good, but I think he wants to be further along than he is right now. His personal best in the 60 is still uh 6.6, uh, which he ran in 2015. So like, again, back when he was almost still in college. So I think he does expect a little more and I'm not sure if we will see him race again this season, but it's good that he's putting himself back out there, but again, to to finish, you know, almost last in a in a in a world class field, he probably wanted probably a bit more from that. And on the women's side, I think Lucia Stafford's getting there. She's kind of racing into shape, which is a good thing to do. But I think she probably expected herself to be kind of further along. What she kind of did in this race at Milrose was she put herself in position. Um, she was out in the lead in the front for. Uh, probably about 800 meters of the woman's mile and just kind of faded her way back. Um, again, it's, it's, it was probably a learning uh, race for her saying, okay, I know I need to, I need, I need to work on this. I know I need to get this there um, so I can compete with these, um, these, these top women. So I think as the season moves forward, we, we will see Lucia kind of get back into that top mm. 1500 meter form. Um, but all in all, it was a fantastic day for Canadian athletes at Melrose. Oh, 100%. I think you nailed it, too. When I look at Lucy's performance, I see it more as, again, you're building up for something bigger. Same with Andre, of course. Like you said, 
that's something that's always sort of followed him throughout his career is getting into the blocks early. I know for a fact that he has the title of world's fastest man circled on his bucket list and that he wants that medal. It's it's just becoming more and more of a competitive field. Like the sprinting scene right now is star studded. And so I think you're right. I think getting in a 60 meter and putting yourself in a vulnerable position and being in a race that you're maybe not naturally attuned to, it's a great decision at the same time and not the best performance. Um, so we'll see how he continues to to prepare for the big one this summer. But yeah, no, I mean, not, not his best effort, but overall a great, great day. We mentioned someone who yeah. had a fantastic day, CPT earlier, fantastic start to 2024. John Terrier Classic last month, like you mentioned, became Canada's second fastest and oldest sub four miler. Now, this weekend, when you look at his stock rising, how impressed were you with CPT specifically, especially leading towards the Olympics? Are your expectations shifting at all for what he might be able to do? I think he wants to be in that Olympic final and there's nothing more he wants. And he is driven to do whatever it takes to get there. I had the pleasure of sat, uh, sitting down with him at the New Balance Grand Prix a few weeks ago in Boston. And he said, I don't think about age. If I'm going to compete against these 23, 24 year old guys, I need to put myself in the mind of a 23 and 24 year old and train like a 23, 24 year old. So, you know, he's, he did that at Milrose. He, he went out, Yared Nagus was, you know, going for that world mile record. And Charles was just that fifth man sort of in the, in the, at the lead pack going through with it through 800. And he, again, put himself out there for a PB and he, he, he got rewarded. Right. So I think him kind of putting himself out there and knowing what he has to work on and learning and being a student of the sport, as we talked about, will only help him out and it will motivate him more to kind of get to that point and know what it takes to be in that Olympic final. A hundred percent. I was reading that quote from your article yesterday of him putting himself in that 23 year old mindset. And <laughs> I, I love that. And he ran like it, right? If you can mix that hunger and drive of a 23 year old with the experience of a 33 year old that he's proving that that's a dangerous, dangerous recipe for everyone else. Do you think he would try to double in Paris? Potentially he's qualified for the 1500. Yeah, I, I don't think he's interested. He's He knows that the 1500 is his event. And he knows that if there's a, a chance for him to medal, it's going it's to be in the 1500. And he wants to be in that final. He wants to give himself a chance to medal. And I think him doubling, yes, he could probably double. He could probably hit the standard in the 5000. But he wants to he wants to walk away with something. And he knows that that he want, he needs to put all his energy into one event mm-hmm. in order to be successful. Um, I, I like, as you touched on before I, with the quote, I mean, I need to, I need to, I need his, his recipe for that to get myself the similar mindset. I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's an awesome kind of training strategy to have. And I think, again, it's, it motivates you to run faster, right? Now, obviously with such a packed weekend full of racing, even outside of Milrose, Real quick, Marley, what other performances should Canadian running fans be aware of as we enter into this spring season? Yeah, no, those are awesome races on the Canadian scene too. Um, uh, the Vancouver first half was on Sunday and Melinda Elmore uh, ran one of the fastest times in event 
in history to uh, win her first Vancouver first half title. So that was exciting. She's currently building for the 2024 Boston Marathon uh, in preparation for the Paris Olympics. And she was just selected for the Olympic team last week uh, alongside Cam Levins as the first kind of Canadian marathoners announced for that team. Um, so that's really, really, really exciting to see that she's in that sort of good shape going into Boston this spring. And it should be interesting to see what she uh, will throw down there. And on the men's side, it was it was kind of shocking. A Canadian triathlete beat a bunch of Canadian elites to to win the men's race. So no one could have seen that coming. I mean, that's, that's kind of awesome to see uh, someone cross over into the running side of the sport, even though it's, they're very closely related, but to kind of have that performance is, is, it's always cool to see. Oh, fantastic. Now, obviously such a, such a busy time of year. And of course, most recently we had Ben Preisner who, who put up just a crazy, crazy impressive performance, becoming the second fastest marathoner. Marley, thank you so much for your time. We are about to jet off and speak with Ben hear a little bit more about that race. So stay tuned for that. We have a little bit of a chat and about his plans. Marathon spots are still open for the Olympic team. Ben missed that Olympic standard, but he was oh so close. So we'll see what plans lie in store from him. It's a stage that he knows all too well. But in the meantime, Marley, thank you so much for hopping on. Your insights are always so, so valuable. And yeah, we'll take any time we can get, my man. No problem, David. Thank you so much. Anytime. Cheers. Ben, you're fresh off a huge personal best in the marathon last week in Japan, posting 208.58 to become the second fastest Canadian marathoner in history. First of all, when I say that sentence, does it feel real to you yet? It's just, it's such a remarkable accomplishment. Yeah, no, I, I well, thank you first off, but yeah, it's a, it's definitely surreal and the marathon's such a interesting event in that you kind of rely on a whole bunch of things coming together on one day. And uh, there's a lot of pressure on that one day. So being able to to kind of put it together on the day is really special to me. And I think it's a testament to, you know, my support group, my family, my coach, my a therapist and everything culminating to one final day. And then being able to execute on the day was uh, really special to me for sure. And I want to dive into a, that, those supportive elements, the people around you, how they've assisted as well as the buildup. But I think as well, I was really curious. I think a lot of listeners will be too. We hear about the environments in Valencia, Chicago, New York, some of these more major marathons that we know about or that people really mark on the calendar. But I'm curious what the environment was like in Japan, what the course was like. Can you sort of build out how that maybe played a role as well? Yeah, uh, it was it was a really interesting uh, race. I mean, the city's beautiful. It, it was in Oita, um, which is in Japan, obviously. So it, it was beautiful. Honestly, very reminiscent of Vancouver, where I where I train and and live right now. So um, you know, it's like along the ocean, mountains in the background, um, pretty temperate climate. Like it was ten degrees pretty much, give or take, every day. So. Um, in terms of like where the race was set up, it was, it was pretty ideal. I was very familiar, obviously, you know, there's a little bit of cultural differences and food differences and stuff, but, uh, I was there long enough to kind of find my restaurants that I would go to for, for a while there. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of the environment of the race itself, it's the Japanese races have been proven. If you just look at, I mean, 
look at their rankings on how many Japanese men and women hit Olympic standard, for example, it's the culture of marathoning in Japan is almost next to none. Um, and so they know how to set up a fast race. They know how to build an elite field. And uh, that was something that, you know, my coach and I really knew and, and took advantage of um, when looking at kind of the most optimal race for me uh, this spring. And you said after the race, I felt like this one's been due and, and happy I could put it together and compete on the day. Did you know that it was going to be a special day coming in? You said, you know, the marathon to some degree, we've talked with a lot of pro and elite marathoners. And even if you've put the work in, even if it's been a, a crazy training block, there's so many wild cards on the day, whether it's weather, whether it's how nutrition's going to go down. But getting on that start line, was there a gut feeling like, okay, there, there might be something special here? Yeah, I was I was very confident going in. I think the build, whether you want to call it whatever, probably the last 12 weeks we were really focusing on like marathon training, for example. Like there pretty much wasn't a workout that went worse than expected. So everything was either as expected or better, which I mean, that's pretty much all you can ask for, especially in more higher volume training weeks. You know, you got the fatigue in the legs. As long as you can hit those workouts and feel pretty comfortable, um, it really rose my confidence going into the, to the race. And I was fortunate to be able to, to go there. I was in, in Oida for about eight or nine days before the race, which gave me lots of time to act, act, get used to the time change and the flight, the long travel, all of that um, really helped me just like really get into the zone, focus on the race, control what I can control. And then on, on race day, it was just a matter of executing, just sitting in that group and and staying as comfortable as possible. Now, I'm I'm sure looking back, having that 208.58 in your pocket, there's no regrets of previous races. But maybe before lining up last week, when you say something like this one felt due, was there a race that you'd maybe felt just as fit previously that, again, those elements didn't come together on the day, maybe before last week, would there have been a race that you would have wanted to have back? Yeah, you know, it's, it's been an interesting marathon career for for myself in the last, uh, I mean, I guess three years. Because, um, I mean, my debut was before that, my PB. And so it's kind of an interesting mentality going into races when I know my debut was my best. And, you know, I, I, I jokingly would tell my fiance, you know, like I've, I've only gotten worse from here. Like every, every race where, you know, okay, I've done a lot of championship racing and especially in the heat and stuff where I'm not expecting to run super fast. It was more of a, a placing kind of championship, but, um, you know, there was a couple, I, I raced Valencia marathon after the Tokyo games. Uh, that one was, I don't know. I feel like it was a mixture of, riding that emotional high from the Olympics and just trying to force it a little bit too much, maybe a little bit overtrained. And honestly, like I said, just a bad day. It's, it happens, you know, you put all your eggs in one basket and sometimes the the day just is not there. Um, so that one was a bit of a stinger because, you know, I was coming off the high of the Olympics and had a pretty low, I mean, I walked a couple times in that race. So it was, uh, it was a bit humbling to, to come from those extremes within the matter of, you know, from August to December. So that one was a stinger. Um, you know, I think the last two world championships, I think, were were good. Were okay, but not great. I think Oregon, I felt like I was really fit. I had a similar build to this one, I'd say, where workouts were going pretty well. I don't think there was really any 
major red flags that I had going into it, but the day was okay. I, I executed as good as I think I could have on the day, but, um, you know, two eleven forty five, I think it was somewhere in that range. And like I said, it was good, not great. 28th place or whatever it was, something like that. It's like, so there wasn't like a, a race where I'm like, ah, oh, that was the worst thing ever. Like I, I really botched that. I think it was mm-hmm. just a, a matter of, you know, repetition is one thing and getting used to how the mileage affects workouts and curbing expectations and certain things. And then I think the last factor was the mentality going to this build was especially for the first, I would say month and a half of the build my mentality was kind of just like clicking off B plus efforts and just, I don't need to swing for the fences every single workout. I don't need that for my ego. You know, like I, I've, I've been a marathoner long enough that I, I can trust the process, trust my coach's program. And um, so hitting those like kind of base hits consistently for, you know, six or eight weeks really helped me just gradually build that momentum. And then mm. I think we timed the workouts properly to, to go into this race perfectly. So I was going to ask, you mentioned a couple of potential elements there that may have been differentiating factors compared to previous races, whether it's you know not riding that high or finding the right volume for you or being really intentional with the workouts. What do you think was maybe the biggest factor that set this block apart and, and sort of allowed for breaking through that plateau? Yeah, it's such a it's such an interesting thing. Like you can pick apart each little individual thing. I don't think we like drastically changed uh, workout strategies or or even like volume was pretty normal. I'd say for my last few builds, um, I do think like just repetitions in terms of number of marathon builds that I've done has helped a lot because you know it's when you're in your first couple and you are kind of cranking out 115, 120 mile weeks, and it's like going into a workout when you wake up in the morning and your legs are tired, you're like, hmm, this is going to be an interesting morning if I'm waking up tired going to this workout. And so I've come to, you know, you almost come to expect that um, when you're in the thick of a marathon build. So I think that's, that's one thing is the mental shift of like, I'm expecting to feel like garbage, but I know once I start moving, once I start getting into the workout, things will start to, to iron out and it's having that kind of faith that things will iron out too. Um, but I think, also my coaches, my coach Richard Lee, he's really good at adapting slight changes to our program, depending on the type of race, for example, like we mm. knew the the kind of par for the course if you're going to a Japanese race is there's going to be one giant group going out really fast. Like no matter if you're a 212 runner or a 206 runner, everyone's going out in 206 pace. Like it doesn't, they don't care. And, and it's, actually unbelievable how many people like in my race there was i'm gonna say a good group of 30 people maybe going through half at 63 30 which like you couldn't beg people to do that in a north american race so it's like we adapted our training to be able to know that running like three minute kilometers would be pretty comfortable through half and even 30k Um, and then you know it's we knew it was going to be a dogfight in that last 12 five, seven K, something like that, uh, depending on how, how the day was going. So I think there's a bunch of different factors, but, uh, the, the slight adaptations into, um, really targeting specific racing helped a lot. 
And it's, yeah, I'm sure, you know, building, like you mentioned, that mental callus where there is a normalcy to that soreness and you go, okay, these, these are known factors. I know how to deal with it. I know I have to work through it and not to paint with a broad brush. I mean, you nailed it. That Japanese racing mentality, it's just, it's so gutsy. It's so bold. And it, that's what, that's what makes it so fun to watch, to watch those Japanese elites. And I'm sure a bit of a blast and adrenaline rush to race alongside. Now, you mentioned your coach, Richard. That's something in my research that really sort of piqued my interest in how he's maybe impacted your training. When did you two start working together? And maybe how has the philosophy of training changed since working alongside him? Yeah, we. I started with Rich. Um, it have been like December of 2020. So I, I graduated university in 2019, um, kind of had, oh no, 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 no. It would have been December of 2019. So I graduated in the summer of 2019, wasn't even sure about running and everything like that. I, you know, I was kind of focused on career at that point. And then uh, I ran a couple halves, like Vancouver half or in the Toronto waterfront half. And then that kind of like snowballed into like, oh, well, why don't I just give it a crack for the Tokyo games? Might as well. And that's how I, I came into to Rich's team. Um, I mean, he's he's got a full resume that, uh, I don't know, I don't feel like I don't have to say. I mean, he's coached <laughs> some really great athletes like Dylan Wakes and Rachel Cliff and multiple Olympians, Luke Bruchet. Um, And so jumping into this team was kind of seamless. Like his training style was very similar to what I had in, in university in terms of like long tempos, relatively high mileage, but not crazy high mileage either and so I think he understood that you know being a first-time marathoner I'd say my build in the marathon project was not crazy different than what I did for for Oida for example but um you know he he's he understands that you know I've got my bottles and nutrition kind of down pat now so I don't need to focus on taking in bottles off a aid station, for example. So we worked on that on the early stages and then now we can work on other aspects of marathoning. For example, like sitting into a pace early on in a marathon, that's a little bit fast, you know, like I, mm -hmm. I'm not, I wasn't expecting to run 206, but we were practicing at three minute Ks for some of the longer tempo efforts, just because I knew that I was going to have to. So yeah, I think Rich's coaching is very analytical, which is plays into my mindset quite quite well I think we're very similar in that approach so I'm very used to getting you know spreadsheets sent to me on different pacing strategies and what races are best and historically how these races are paced out and all this kind of stuff I think uh, Rich's temperament mentality into training it's kind of the perfect storm for me and so I, I honestly couldn't have uh, picked a better coach to to really kick off my marathon career and obviously he's led you to some some huge, huge career benchmarks already, having the chance to represent Canada in 2020 for the marathon in Tokyo, which was only your second crack at the distance. Obviously, we're in an Olympic year this year. You took such a great swing at that Olympic standard, which has become, I mean, we've talked about it with other runners, it's so lofty, which not to speak for you, a lot of competitive racers are like, yeah, we welcome that. Let's raise the bar. At the same time, it is a crazy mark to hit. When you look towards this summer, how much would it mean to be able to put on that Canadian uniform again and represent Canada on that stage? 
it's you know it's it's almost goes without saying it's an unbelievable honor every time i i get to to wear the singlet for canada um yeah it's a it's been an interesting chess game almost on on qualifying in terms of is standard realistic if it is realistic where's the best place to do it if it's not realistic how do you optimize all your points and run halves here and run fulls here and play the point system and all that it's a which is exactly what I'm saying with Rich in terms of the analytical mindset where I'll get spreadsheets on, you know, if you run this race, typically it's top five are in this area and then you get this amount of bonus points. So it's like all that kind of uh, that game right now. Um, but I, I totally agree with the sentiment on, on like the bar getting raised. I think, you know, even for like the Tokyo games, for example, there was so much talk on how much the plated shoes were, increasing all these times and everything like that but i think it's like honestly people were saying that 21130 was a crazy standard too mm-hmm. so when they set that standard then all of a sudden people are trying to run you know 211 210 and now they raise the bar to 208 and so now we got a whole bunch of guys especially in north america that are taking a crack at 208 who you know honestly if they set the bar at 210 for example i feel like a lot of people would be trying to run 209 high 209 mid so i think i'm not underplaying the technology aspect of of running that's obviously a change and it's definitely helpful in in races but i think there's like this this band of of movement that's happening because the bar is getting set so high that's uh that's really pushing the sport forward yeah and and you said it too i mean at a certain point there are going to be diminishing returns from the shoes in terms of we're going to hit a ceiling of how much a carbon plate is going to make a, a an impact or the stack on race foam and and that's why those regulations are in place i think it's just an element of people are optimizing every element of training getting into the analytics as well and that seems to be making the difference when you look at the olympic standard 20810 again you're so close how do you think do you think anyone else will manage to hit it before the cutoff i know i'm asking you to speculate a little bit <laughs> yeah you, you never know i think there's there's still a handful of guys that are, are taking a swing at it um there's a couple guys that are still in the in the range for points as well um i mean the kind of the big names I feel like I don't need to introduce them, but we've got like Rory Linkletter, who's, I think he's already in on points right now, but we're, we're kind of on the fringe. So I feel like he's looking to upgrade his points at least, but I think he's going to take a crack at standard. And I think he's a great runner to to go for it too. He's got that really fast 10 K half marathon speed. I mean, I think he just ran a sub four miles, so he's still got track speed too, but um, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be shocked at all if he put down a really good time and there's, other guys like uh other teammate from from Tokyo Trevor Hoffbauer I know he's he's still got his eyes on on another spring marathon and you know there's there's always guys that are looking to to optimize and mm-hmm. never know you never know there could be someone that we're not necessarily talking about right now but uh could have their you know how I had my marathon project day they could have their their yeah. first one too and you never really know right so how are you feeling if it doesn't, if no one hits that standard, how confident are you that, again, Rory's in there with the points. We obviously have Cam there already. How confident are you that you'd be selected if it comes down to that? Yeah, I think I think I'm 78th right now, which I'm, I'm not very uh, confident on that holding for another three months or four months. So um, 
definitely have to race again. Mm. What I'm going to race again, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, I ideally probably a half marathon, so I don't have to, to put another marathon in the legs, especially in terms of optimizing the build <laughs> for potentially Paris. So, yeah, but that being said, you know, that's the game. If I have to run another marathon, whether it's the, to get more points, because half marathon points are a little bit handicapped compared to full especially for my type of running style. So, you know, if I have to run a marathon to, to upgrade my points or if things are looking like, yeah, you're going to have to run standard to make the team, then then obviously another crack's going to be what's necessary. So still playing with the calendar a little bit, getting my name on a couple of lists and, and reaching out to, to races to see what would be the best option. I know it's stressful for you guys, but selfishly as, as fans of the sport, it's electric for us. I mean, we were talking with... Natasha a few weeks ago, Wodak, and you know, it's this rush to hit these times before these dates. And then like you mentioned, it's also this chess game of figuring out points, figuring out the best strategy to optimize those performances while saving the legs. It's unlike any other sport in the world, to be honest, in that sense, you mentioned it there a little bit. What are your plans for the spring then? You know, you, you obviously got to try to like we said, optimize these points. Do you have anything that you'd optimally like to be jumping in? I wouldn't say that there's a concrete race, for example, that I, that I'm targeting at this moment. I mean, we. I'm only. I'm still uh, just about a week out of the the last race, so I'm still kind of in like downtime, trying to get the legs back and recover properly. Because I think that's the danger when we start stacking these marathons back to back to back. That I'm just going to. I'm going to burn out, and that's the mm. last thing that we want to do. So I'm I'm cautiously approaching recovery, but then also building out the calendar. But yeah, like I said, I think. Targeting a fast half marathon, I don't know what that would be, like late March, early April in that range um, to see what that can do for me in terms of points. And then if we need to pivot and run a marathon later in the spring, then it is what it is. But, you know, like we said, it's it's a matter of doing what's necessary to make a team. And then also I want to compete as best as I possibly can if mm-hmm. I can make that team too. So it's a, it's a multi-factor decision for sure. It's going to be a blast to see how it shakes out. I mean, we're fans of of so many of the Canadian guys, but I, I yeah, I think a trio of you, Cam, and then that tactical running from Rory would be such a diverse set of runners in terms of the approach and sort of the the training philosophies as well. So uh, selfishly, I'm I'm rooting for that a little bit. We'll see how it shakes out. Now we had talked about it previously on this episode with one of our staff writers marley and obviously in the intro of this episode the it was a big weekend of racing for canadian runners but i think the thing that sort of eclipsed all of that was obviously as as i'm sure you know the loss of kelvin kiptum who as a marathoner yourself i'm sure just set such a blueprint as to what was possible in the sport i'm curious to, to close us out ben could you speak to maybe Kelvin's impact on you as a runner and what it's like to have been able to watch such an incredible, inspiring athlete do it at the highest level. Yeah, it's definitely a very unfortunate, sad scenario that that hit the running world there. I mean, anyone who's pushing the the limits of racing deserves all the limelight. So, I mean, he's, he's definitely pushed the limits and raised the bar when everyone was looking at Kipchoge as the the number one guy that would take a crack at the world record again. And 
then Kelvin came on the scene. So I mean, his even you look at that like fourteen month span from starting in I believe it was Valencia to London to Chicago. I mean, mm-hmm. he he hit that like I don't I might have those races wrong exactly, but uh, I mean, oh, he, you nailed it. Yeah, yeah, he hit those that like eighteen months of just wowing people every single race that he did, and I think that's just super inspiring. Whether you're whether you're a two o two guy or two o one guy actually competing with him, or you're a two o eight two o nine guy like myself, or even you know three hour people that are trying to push for for a Boston Marathon time. Like mm-hmm. I think there's this interesting aspect of seeing what's possible and pushing boundaries that uh, he just ignited in that couple months of of inspiration. So definitely unfortunate, definitely sad and. We'll definitely be paying tribute to him this year while we push for Paris. Yeah, a hundred percent. You you said it so succinctly there. I, I think, you know, when we talk about man, the Olympic standard, the, the bar is being raised, it's because there are athletes that are showing, oh my God, this is humanly possible. I mean, 20 years ago, it would have been a ridiculous concept. And, you know, athletes who do it, you know, like Kelvin with such joy. You know, whether it's the fastest debut in history or a course record in London, a world record in Chicago, doing it with a, a smile on their face and finding such joy in the sport. And, you know, to have that reverberate to runners like yourself, it's, you know, how how, how his legacy lives on is other people taking that torch and continuing to, to do great things with it. Ben, thank you so much for hopping on. We really appreciate your time. I know this is a busy, busy time for you and going to be a really exciting year ahead. So we cannot wait to see what you do. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Cheers. Thank you so much for tuning into my conversation with Marley and Ben as per usual. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast and follow us at Shakeout Podcast on social media for clips and updates from the program. It always helps us out a ton. Of course, stay tuned for what Ben has in store this spring as well, as all signs point to him peaking at just the right time. We cannot wait to cheer him on from the sidelines. Lastly, in the vein of celebrating Kelvin, I urge you to get out for a run today. Embrace that sunshine. Embrace that fresh air embrace the present moment just as he did every single time he caught on the roads we'll be sure to do the same on our end in the meantime happy running and we'll see you next week but it's not the hosts it's their northerly neighbors and somehow after an awful year of injury to grass comes out